Good evening, everyone. Can we have a sound check first? Can you all hear me? Wonderful, Edna. Greetings, Jack. Thanks, Connie. Thanks, Cheryl. Or Sherry, excuse me. And Linda, thank you. That's great. Well, welcome to, oops, let me turn on my other recorder here. Uh, welcome to Fundamentals of Torah for Non-Jews, uh, Chapter 4. Appreciate the fact that you all uh, joined with us here tonight. Like to take just a few minutes and touch base on what we covered last week. Uh, just to review, we've been talking about nine tools of Torah, uh, some fundamental tools that each of us can use both in the study of Torah and in our everyday lives uh, to make sure that we're uh, analyzing ideas correctly and moving in the right direction. And we started out with the first of those tools last week being the incredible fundamental need to ask questions, something that is not uh, taught so heavily in our society. In fact, in some senses in our educational system, we're sometimes taught not to ask questions, or we're taught that it's politically incorrect to ask questions, or uh, that even questioning someone is considered to be an attack. Yet if we want to understand the ideas in Torah and actually any kind of an idea, whether it's political or practical with regard to our job or whatever it might be, we have to ask questions and ask lots of them. That becomes the true test for whether an idea is clear to us. If we've asked all the questions around it and we can answer them all, then we really know uh, what we're talking about. The second tool is that we defined wisdom to be the ability to see and act on the basis of consequences. Uh, when we can look long term and recognize the consequences of our actions, uh, then we're operating in accordance with wisdom. It's an interesting thing in today's technological age where anything that you put down these days uh, in an email can uh, often be resurrected and forwarded to other people and sort of takes on a life of its own. And so you have to think through sometimes very carefully the consequences of any words that you put in the form of an email. Uh, I teach the people that I work with, never write anything in the email that you would not want to see on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, uh, because sometimes that's what happens. So our ability to do that and train our children to see that becomes critical to living a life of wisdom, seeing and then acting on the basis of those consequences. We also discussed that the only way that we make real behavior change is when an idea becomes clear to our mind. Uh, someone can get us to do something by a threat, hold a gun to our head literally or figuratively and get us to act, but the only way real behavior change happens is when we clearly see why it is to our benefit to do that. And that's why it's so very important to be able to ask the right questions, to recognize reality, and then go over those ideas uh, again and again until our mind sees the idea very clearly. And then we can get uh, our emotions to line up behind that. And fourth, we discussed the importance of leading with our intellect. I would submit to you that in our day and age, most people lead with their emotions and then get their intellect to back that up. You probably run into someone who, uh, you know, goes and buys a new car or something and says, oh, yes, I just fell in love with that car. 
And then they said, oh, and it got the like, J.D. Power uh, number three top rating in service and excellence. And what can happen is that a person will go, and I'm just picking on cars for a minute, and will find a car that they really love because of the look, because of the color, or whatever it might be. And once they've already sort of mentally decided, then they'll go do the homework to back up the decision that their emotions already made, as opposed to deciding in advance, well, what is a car's purpose? What do I need it for? What kind is going to be best suited for me? Do I need you know, two-wheel drive, four-wheel drive, four doors, two doors, a convertible, non-convertible, small, medium, large? If I have a family of six, my answers to that will probably be different than if I live alone. And then going out and figuring out which cars meet the qualifications that I have for this tool. Instead, we often do things the other way around. So what we want to emphasize is leading with our intellect. Let's pick up from there. Any questions on those before we move on? Okay, and I do want to mention, Pat, I know you would ask a question last week about the commandment to be fruitful and multiply. I am still researching that one. I've got some information, but not yet uh, cohesive enough uh, that I'm uh, still comfortable. I have more questions that I'm still having to ask, but I have not forgotten that question. Okay, let's move on. Tool number five is that it is better to understand one idea clearly than many ideas superficially. Years ago, I found myself one day driving somewhere in my car, listening to an educational cassette tape while eating a hamburger. And I got done with that tape, and I thought, okay, done with that one, and popped in the next one. And somewhere along the way, it dawned on me that, yeah, I was sure listening to those tapes, but first of all, my mind's partway diverted on the road, my mind's partway diverted on the burger I'm eating, and I was skating through those educational cassettes kind of like a greased pig sliding across ice. You know, I, I kind of heard it, and I say, uh-huh, yeah, that's great, but it wasn't really making an impact. And so I would suggest to you that a quantity of ideas that are not clear affects us less than one idea that is clear. Better to understand a single idea very deeply because then it can affect me than to know, you know, lots and lots of different ideas. We should only learn as fast as we can absorb the information. Uh, you know, in our society, sometimes there's a tendency to want to cover ground. And yet, if we cover the ground, but at the end of the day, we can't remember what it is that we learned, or it hasn't had an effect on us, uh, then we could ask, well, what was the point of all that? Um, I once was exposed to a gentleman who read something like five books a week. I mean, he, he just spent much of his spare time reading, and I happened to men mention this to one of my rabbinic mentors, and I noticed that he was singularly unimpressed. And we talked about it a little bit, and his, his reaction was, look, when you read that much material, it's not the question of how much material you read, but is it, are the ideas affecting this guy at all? And if they aren't affecting him, What's the point of all the reading? It doesn't really get you anywhere at the end. So 
you know, I think it was he who mentioned after all of our learning, what remains is our education. And it's very easy if you if you get pulled into uh, going to lots of seminars and listening to lots of things. You know, you can mentally in your mind go back and say, well, gee, how many seminars did I uh, listen to uh, and take part in over the last, I don't know, five years? And then we can ask, okay, Doug, how many ideas can you remember from those seminars? And of those ideas, how many really affected you? So, again, back to the theme, it's better to understand one idea clearly than many ideas superficially. Question comes, well, how do you do that? And I would suggest one possible way to go about working on that is to, if you listen to educational CDs or tapes or whatever, or even a tape of this class, you could listen to it. Then you could go back and listen to it again. And then you could transcribe the major ideas into writing and summarize them, all the time asking yourself questions along the way until those ideas become so familiar to you that, again, you've asked every question around them and they're crystal clear. I had the opportunity years ago to study in karate with a man who, as far as I know at that time, was the only living 10th degree black belt in karate. His name was uh, Hanshi Judon Isao Ichikawa. And story was told of him that when he was training uh, as a young karate student in Japan, uh, they were very formal in the dojo, and he was taught initially how to do a down block. This is a pretty basic move in martial arts. And that in that dojo, that was the only move he was allowed to practice for nine months was a down block. Now, I got to tell you, when you sit there and work for, you know, an hour or two a week or whatever it was for nine months on a single martial art move, it doesn't really matter what kind of an attack comes you're going to be ready with that down block because you know that move so well, so strong, so perfected that it will be a part of your automatic repertoire. Uh, when I first had the good fortune to meet Rabbi Israel Chait, who uh, some of you may be familiar with, he uh, worked for a very long time with the Noahides group, uh, quite a number of years um, in Athens, has worked closely with, uh, with Jack, he put out a, a series of uh, Noahide lectures that are still available um, on CD, and they're excellent uh, for Noahides. Uh, you can access them through the uh, website ybt.org. But uh, he, when he was a young man, read the Dialogues of Plato. And uh, he would take, rather than just read through it, he would take one page, and I think he did this when he was, you know, in his late teens or early 20s. He would take one page only of the Dialogues of Plato per day, and he would read the page, and then he would spend the rest of that day thinking about that page, just that one. What, or, and, you know, perhaps earlier information, but he was focused on that page. Why did um, Socrates ask the questions this way? Why didn't he ask that question? Why did he go down this road? 
what was and he just he analyzed it and worked through it one page per day at a time and that had a tremendous impact on his thinking process because when you really focus and delve into something that deeply you really sharpen your thinking skills so again clarity in one idea is more important than skating uh, across 20 ideas. Okay, any questions about that tool? Okay, um, tool number six, very interesting. You could say, well, how do we really get good at this? And we've started to, uh, to do this with regard to the classes we're in. And that is the incredible importance of this single one-word review. We have to start with basics and go over and over these things until they're clear to our mind. And the ideas become clear to our mind because we review them a lot. And we're able to ask all the questions. And as we do that, that's when the ideas begin affecting our mind. Every once in a while, you may come across an idea that, bam, gives you this huge instant insight. But generally speaking, that behavior change we're talking about comes with continual, continual review. Uh, let me share with you a couple of uh, stories. These are both true. And imagine, you know, you're witnessing this situation. Border patrol agents down on the Rio Grande River. Patrolling the river, and all of a sudden, some banditos start firing shots across the river from them, and they start firing back, and then the banditos fire some more, and they fire more back, and pretty soon, you got a major firefight going on. And a guy who was at this firefight watched one of his Border Patrol colleagues, and the Border Patrol colleague would empty his, uh, once he, his uh, gun was empty, he would um, pop out the, the old casings, and put in new bullets, obviously. But then he would reach down and pick up the empty brass casings off the ground and put them in his pocket while the firefight is going on. Can you imagine that? In the middle of real bullets flying, this guy's picking up empty casings and putting them in his pocket. Can you guess as to why that was happening? Why he was doing that? And while you're pondering that, let me share with you the second story. Two California Highway Patrolmen make a routine traffic stop on a freeway. What they don't realize is that the two guys in the car had just robbed a bank. And the guys in the car start shooting at them. And so the Highway Patrolmen get behind their car, and now we've got a firefight going on between the bad guys and the highway patrolman. One of the highway patrolmen is hit. He's down behind the car. The other is behind the car, still engaging in the firefight, and his gun jams. Somebody was watching this from a apparently safe distance and happened to have a video camera and got this on tape. Firefight going on, one patrolman down, one guy's still fighting, the gun jams, and the patrolman whose gun jams is trying to clear it behind the car, and he has his hand stuck up in the air. Can you imagine or guess why he would do that? And I'll give you a hint. 
the reason for both of these actions in both stories is the same. Anyone want to take a shot at, no pun intended, at what the answer is? Jack, I see you typing in something. Ah, thank you. Too much training on the firing range. You're absolutely right. What for, in the case of the Border Patrol guys, they would practice at the firing range. And the rules at the firing range are that you clean your own mess up. In other words, you, you pick up your own brass once you've shot. And this guy was used to picking up the brass as he went along, so he didn't apparently have a big job left over at the end. So he'd fire and shoot and reload and then pick up the empty casings. Now, when you do that long enough, gets to our point of tool number six, review, that becomes automatic for you. And so when push comes to shove, in a fight, people will do what they are trained to do. And in this case, he automatically picked up the brass as he was fighting. And when he was asked later after the fight was over about it, he did not even remember doing it. In the case of the border patrolman, he also trained at a range. And the rule at the range was, if your gun jams, hold up your hand and the range master will come and help you. And this patrolman, and apparently becomes so clear with those rules that in the middle of a real fight, he reverted to what he had been trained. Review, review, review. We go over and over things, and they begin to become part of us. General Patton once said that to become a good general, you study any battle you can, not with the idea of remembering it, the specifics, but to make it a part of you. This is why in things like martial arts training, they take you through lots of different fighting scenarios, not because they're trying to get you to memorize them, because they have no idea what kind of situation you're going to run up against, you know, in the real world. But they want you to learn enough principles so that you start applying them automatically if you get into a real fight. Again, review, review, review. Uh, it's, it's one of those things that... Um, you know, just becomes part of us. And, as we discussed, people will do what they're trained to do. We have to then become engaged with the ideas as we go along, and that really happens through the review, sometimes, and, and perhaps most times, after the class is over. Uh, interestingly, there uh, is a statistic uh, or a study that was done of valedictorians. Uh, trying to find out, well, what makes them different from other students? And one of the things they found was that valedictorians would review their class notes within something like five hours after the class was over. So that helped to reinforce the ideas. Now, importantly, review is not repetition. Repetition is just when you kind of go over things, uh, the facts, uh, and nothing particularly new is added. It's, it's like rote memorization. What review is, is the ability to look at something completely fresh and see it as if it were the first time. 
So your mind is always engaged, not just the memory portion, but the active part of your mind. And it's very important that we see every step. There's a temptation sometimes to skip steps and sort of say, oh, yeah, I know that. Uh, when I was taking piano lessons as a, uh, a young child, um, you know, I would get to the difficult parts in the piece, and I would just kind of rush through them, and it was a, kind of this mush of, of sounds, and I sort of, oh, yeah, I'm, I can do that. And I was doing, I was, you know, great at fooling myself and teacher until the teacher would say to me, uh, play that part slow for me, and I couldn't do it. So that's similar to what we sometimes do when we, when we go back over an idea. We say, oh, yeah, I know that. Well, do we really, and can we reconstruct every step in the process just like we would a mathematical formula? It's, it's all uh, about review. And if you don't necessarily see that you're making any progress or, gee, this doesn't seem like it's, it's helping me any, I would share with you this analogy. If you want to take a white sheet and dye it red, and you get a vat of water and you put some red dye in it. If you take the sheet and dunk it in and pull it right out again, you probably will not notice any difference. If you dunk the sheet in and pull it out and dunk the sheet in and pull it out and dunk the sheet and pull it out, after a while it will slowly turn pink and then over time it will turn red. Now at any point in those dunkings, you probably can't tell the difference between what the sheet looked like before you dunked it than after you dunked it, because the change in shade is so slight, yet over time it has an impact. And it's the same thing when we review correct ideas. We, we may not get this big wow, like, oh, yeah, gee, now my whole life's changed, but slowly over time the ideas begin to affect us. And I have seen this happen, I've seen it in other people, and I've seen it in my own life um, in studying with, uh, with the rabbinic mentors that I've had the good fortune to, uh, to work with. If you think for a minute about, um, think about pastors and churches or professors at universities and colleges and their lectures. If a professor stands up and gives a lecture or a, um, let's take this analogy, uh, you have uh, a whole um, opera house filled with uh, audience and 50 people in a symphony on a stage playing a piece of music. Who's getting the most out of the music? I would submit to you that it's the people playing it. Why? Because they've gone over it and over it and they are appreciating subtle nuances in that music that the audience who's hearing it for the first time probably wouldn't even catch. The same with the professor in his lecture. He's delved into those ideas and did the study and the learning, and so when he stands up there, he sees the beauty of the structure and the ideas, whereas the students and the audience may be getting just the first surface level of that. But by going over and over those ideas, they can then get that uh, as well. Any questions about review? Okay. Uh, Let's move on to tool number seven. I would like you to imagine that you are a police officer. And you are in your patrol car. It's a hot summer afternoon. 
You are sitting on the side of the road and have just taken a nice bite out of your lunchtime Big Mac when you get a call on the radio that there's a report of an armed holdup at a 7-Eleven just about three-quarters of a mile from you, and you are by far the closest police car in the vicinity. The suspect is reported to be male, about 5 foot 10, medium build, brown hair. You reluctantly put down the Big Mac, click on your flashing lights, and go zooming down the road. When you get close, you turn off the flashing lights and the siren, because if there's something going on, you don't necessarily want to alert them that you're coming. You pull your patrol car off to the side parking lot, and you carefully and surreptitiously walk up uh, by the side of the building, carefully up to the front door and look in. And this is what you see. On the floor, behind the counter where the proprietor usually stands, there is a body. And the body is groaning and making some noise, but clearly is in pain and difficulty. In front of the counter, where the customer usually stands, there's another body. It's not moving at all, and there's some reddish, liquidish-looking stuff coming out from underneath it. Standing over that body is a guy about five foot ten, medium build, brown hair, holding a gun. You have a split second to make a decision. What are you going to do? Okay, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? I mean, there's the bad guy. He just shot a customer. He just shot the proprietor. You're going to pull out your dirty, hairy 44 Magnum with the hollow tip bullets and light him up, right? Okay. Your split second is passed, and hopefully each of you did something in your own head. And I'm going to ask you if you're willing to, to put your responses up uh, on the screen. I would like to say, first of all, how many of you chose to shoot the man with the gun? Anybody? Anybody that wants to, to share that? Okay, I got a couple of no's. Anybody make a conscious decision to not shoot the man with the gun? Okay, got some good, got some conscious decision not to shoot. And here I'm going to ask you to be ruthlessly honest. Uh, anybody or how many of you weren't sure exactly what to do? Which is a very fair answer. Okay, Terry and Laurie, good. I see that. You did not see him shoot. Good. Okay, not sure. Thank you, Connie. Appreciate your honesty on that. This is not an easy situation. Uh, very difficult. Decided not to do anything rash? Okay, good. Hold everyone responsible. I find out what happened. Excellent. That's a very good point, Linda. So it's interesting. I, I posed this scenario and this question to a high school group once, and there were, if I recall, a modest number of them uh, who did decide to shoot the guy with the gun. Um, so 
Yeah, and a very good point. The shooter might be a good guy or girl. And in this case, this is how this situation came down. Bad guy walks into the store, pulls out a gun, points at the proprietor, and says, give me all the money in the till. The proprietor does something, we're not sure what, spooks the, the bad guy, and the bad guy shoots him, hits him in the shoulder. The proprietor, the owner, the person behind the cash register goes down and is on the floor now wounded. In the meantime, a private citizen in the back of the store who's getting some milk out of the cooler sees what's going on. And he happened to be armed legally, and he pulls out his legal firearm for which he has a legal concealed weapons permit and for which he has had extensive training. And he points it from the back of the store at the bad guy and yells, freeze. The bad guy whirls around to shoot him. The good guy gets the drop on the bad guy, fires off two shots, hits the bad guy, and the bad guy goes down right in front of the counter. The good guy, wanting to make sure there's not another accomplice, carefully works his way up to the front of the store, looking around until he's standing right over the bad guy holding the gun. Right at that point, as the police officer, you show up. And the good guy looks at you and sees you and thinks to himself, this is going to turn out fine if I can just stay alive for about the next three seconds. Now, the purpose of my telling you and having you go through that exercise is a huge thinking skill. And that is the importance of differentiating between facts and interpretations. We have to separate between facts and interpretations. In this particular scenario, the fact is that there are two guys on the floor and a man standing over one of them with a gun. Those are the only facts that I have. Everything else after that is an interpretation. And it might be right and it might be wrong. Now, you could say, no, wait a minute. The guy with the gun matches the description of the shooter. Uh, you know, male, five foot ten, medium build, brown hair. The problem is that description matches millions of people. And so that's not particularly definitive. And even if it was, what we just have is a reported description. We don't know where it came from or whatever. So we might take extra caution. So we have to differentiate between facts and interpretations. That is not so commonly done in our society, I would submit to you. Guy goes to see a psychologist, and this could easily happen in today's economic market, and he says, you know, Doc, I just lost a million dollars in the stock market. I'm ruined and disgraced. And the stock market, or the psychologist's response, might be, you know, you would have a whole lot better experience in life if you would separate between facts and interpretations. It is a fact that you lost a million dollars on the stock market. It is only your interpretation that you're ruined and disgraced. And I thank Maxwell Maltz and his long-ago book, Psycho-Cybernetics, for that example. There's a, a story that you may be familiar with, very interesting one, of a farmer 
who had one horse, and he used his horse to plow the field. And one day the horse ran away. And the townspeople said, oh, man, that's just terrible. What horrible bad luck. And he said, hmm, maybe. Good, bad, it's kind of hard to say. And the next day, the horse comes trotting back in the barn, leading with it five wild mares. And the townspeople said, wow, that's really great good fortune. What good luck. I mean, five new horses. How could a guy be that fortunate? And the farmer says, well, good, bad, it's kind of hard to say. And a couple days later, the farmer's young son is trying to break one of the wild mares, and it throws him, and the young boy breaks his leg. Townspeople say, oh, what terrible bad misfortune, what horrible bad luck. Farmer says, yeah, good, bad, kind of hard to say. And two weeks later, the army comes through the town conscripting all the young men to go off to war, but they leave the farmer's son because his leg is broken. Epictetus was a famous Roman philosopher who summed it up by saying, men are disturbed not by the things that happen, but by their opinion of the things that happen. So I believe it has been said that the beginning of knowledge is the ability to make distinctions between one thing and another. We find this with Adam in the Garden of Eden when he's you know, naming the animals. He's making distinctions between what's different about this one, what's different about the other one. We have to differentiate between facts and interpretations. Scientists tend to work on perfecting that part of the mind that clarifies definitions. Because what we see in life is we see facts and then we have to abstract the concepts out of that. And that's a very important process in Torah thinking. And Pat, I just saw your, your note. Yeah, Epictetus, uh, the translation that I heard was, men are disturbed, not by the things that happen, but by their opinion of the things that happen. So this method of, of thinking is very important in abstracting concepts out of facts. When we look at different things in the Torah, for example, we will see events that happen, and then we have to abstract what's going on behind this. What are the concepts? And we'll get into that uh, in uh, some of our later uh, classes in this series. A lot of people will tend to give you causes and interpretations on why things happen without necessarily differentiating between the more establishing cause and effect. For example, oh, you got a cold? Well, that's because you didn't wear your raincoat. Or you didn't take your vitamin C yesterday or whatever. Um, and don't you love it when people start to tell you how you should cure yourself? I would submit to you, importantly in this, um, cause and effect is an abstract concept. It's not something we ever actually see. We interpret it. So as one shrewd person once says, do red trucks cause fires? Because if you go to any fire of any reasonable size, there'll be a red truck there. Or if you look at trains uh, on a railroad track. So let's suppose you're looking at a railroad track, and here come three engines. And they're moving along. And you look at them, and you say, ah, there's three engines moving. 
and they appear to be tied together, so probably the front one is pulling the back one. But do we know that? No, we just jump to that conclusion. How do we know the back one's not pushing the, the first two? How do we know the middle one isn't you know, pushing and pulling the group? How do we know all three aren't working? How do we know they're not operating completely independently and just happen to be moving very close together? So we have to be careful about differentiating between what is a fact and what is an interpretation. And the way we do that is, again, back to our first principle, to ask lots and lots of questions, asking as many questions as we can come up with including the important question of, is there any exaggeration involved in this? Uh, sometimes we like to exaggerate things, uh, and that can be a very dangerous thing. When somebody says, oh, I, I, you know, I always get the long line at the bank window. Oh, is that really true that it's always? Somebody made a very interesting comment years ago that I read about if you have a fight with your spouse, never say always when you really mean twice. You always leave the dishes in the sink. You always leave your clothes on the floor. You always do this when, in fact, what you really mean is twice. Because that's just exaggeration. We have to get very skilled at spotting inconsistencies in anything that's not clear. And otherwise, we get into very dangerous kinds of situations and fantasies. Let me give you an example uh, that uh, you may not have run into this, but my guess is, given your backgrounds, you may have run into something similar to this. Let's suppose that you have an appointment downtown uh, in uh, a very busy downtown area, and your appointment's for 10 o'clock. And you're running a little bit late, and you get downtown, and it's three minutes to 10, and there is not a parking spot in sight. And you really need to be on time for this appointment. And the nearest parking garage is like four blocks away, and there's no way you're going to be able to ever be able to make it on time that way. And then just as you round the corner, circling the building one more time, right in front of the door, somebody pulls out and leaves an empty space. You pull in right behind them, hop out, drop two quarters in the meter, go walking through the front door, and are in your appointment right at 10 o'clock. And then, particularly if we are religiously oriented, what is the great temptation for us to say? My, isn't it wonderful that God's looking out for me? Except there's a problem. What are the facts and what are the interpretations? I will submit to you that there is only one fact in that situation. A parking spot became available at a time when it was advantageous to me. That's it. Everything after that is a projection. Could be a complete emotional fantasy. Have I done a thorough study of the Torah to see exactly how God relates to people and when he does and when he doesn't intervene in the physical world? Because otherwise, I may be just projecting my emotional fantasies, because after all, you know, <clears throat> God does look out for me because, of course, <clears throat> I'm God's favorite. You know, that kind of thing. <clears throat> Have we really done that study, or are we projecting our own desires onto the world. 
it becomes very important for understanding reality. <coughs> Excuse me. And Torah is huge on being clear about reality. That's why these things become so important. When we go beyond the facts, when we exaggerate, it means we don't want to be limited by reality. Our emotions want something. I want to believe God is ordering the universe specifically for me or something along that line. Uh, and those are very, very dangerous ideas uh, to come up with, which leads us to an important corollary in all this. The most dangerous assumptions are the ones that we don't realize we're making. Uh, if we can think real quick, um, and I'll just ask you for a, uh, think, I'll ask you a question and then think of the uh, answer in your mind, and then we'll uh, get some responses. For a million dollars, would you jump out of an airplane without a parachute? How many of you answered no? You can just give me a quick uh, keyboard response. Okay. Okay. Pat and Edna, thank you. Those. Okay. Okay. Got some more no's. Okay. And Connie, you ask a very penetrating question. Where is the plane? Because if the plane is sitting on the ground and it happens to be like a Cessna 182 and it's on the tarmac, it's about four feet from that plane down to the ground. Now, and if it's any consolation, the first time I heard that, I, you know, I immediately jumped to, no, I wouldn't jump out of an airplane without a parachute. But we make the assumption without thinking about it, well, airplane, that means it's flying. And then we move on from that. And the danger is that we operate on the basis of those assumptions that we're not thinking about. I encounter this in my work all the time where we, you know, in, in not because my work is peculiar, just because of business situations where you think you've covered all the bases on something, but you don't realize what you're assuming that everybody else thinks, and in fact, they aren't thinking that. And you go on that basis. So that's why it becomes extremely, extremely important for us to focus on asking lots of questions and looking at places where things are not clear. Okay. Any questions about that point? All right. Let's move on to the next one. Uh, anyone ever been plagued with guilt, or am I the only one? If you have, one of the most freeing ideas that was ever shared with me was the importance of understanding the real purpose of guilt. And I would submit to you that it's different than most of us think. And this was shared with me by my friend and mentor, Rabbi Martin Moskowitz, that the only real purpose of guilt is to prompt me to do an investigation to determine whether or not I did the right thing. Guilt is not a determiner of whether I did the right thing. Because if you think about it, 
There are lots of people out there with false guilt. There are people that feel guilty because they didn't mow their lawn this weekend. There are people that feel guilty if they don't vacuum their floors once a week. There are people that feel guilty if they don't dust every other day, perhaps. And there's nothing written in the cosmos that says those things have to be done. But we have a conscience, and that conscience has been trained by our upbringing in various situations to react in certain ways. And there are people who feel guilty if they take five minutes to do something nice for themselves. Like, gee, they're not entitled to be able to do that. So the guilt is not a determiner of anything. It's just a prompt to say, okay, you need to do an investigation to find out whether or not you did the right thing. And then you need to go through and rationally look at a situation and decide, okay, yeah, I didn't mow the lawn this weekend, but you know what? There's nothing that anywhere that says I have to. I haven't violated any law. Uh, I haven't hurt anyone. Uh, certainly nothing in Torah that says I have to mow my lawn. So there's no reason for me to feel guilt. And then we move on from there. I, I would suggest to you that a great way to deal with guilt is the way that a computer programmer works. Uh, if you've ever programmed a computer, it's basically a process of sitting down and writing a line-by-line -line set of instructions, or usually line-by-line, set of instructions for the computer to follow. And a computer programmer will do that, and then they will run the program initially. And if it's a you know, long and complicated program, the chances of it working correctly the first time are probably not very good. Now, if you think about a programmer sitting over at some software company, and he runs the program the first time, and it comes up with an error message, do you think that he sits there or she sits there and beats herself over the head and says, oh, I'm such a terrible, horrible person. Oh, I can't go on. I really don't deserve to live. No. In fact, if a manager came along and saw somebody doing that, overriding a program, they'd probably say, would you like quit the balling and get back to work? Because what does the programmer do? They pull out the coding the list of instructions, and they start going through them one line at a time. And they may have some tools to help them do this, but essentially they go through the program one line at a time until they find where the error is. And then they fix it. And that is our job in life when we run into situations where things don't go well, is it's not about beating ourselves up and feeling shame and guilt and and whipping ourselves, it's about, okay, I see that I did something wrong and I got a result that wasn't correct or I violated some precept of the Torah or whatever. Now my responsibility is to go back and step-by-step step look at, okay, what led me to do that? What emotion do I have? What unfinished business do I have? What thing did I have going on in my life? Why did I make that mistake? And what steps can I now make so that I will not make that mistake again? It's a very kind of objective process. So what we want to do is channel those emotions uh, in a, into a rational analysis of the situation so that we can get ourselves out of blame and get into looking at the situation very clearly and recognize mistakes are a learning tool. The, you know, we, we all like to be successful, but as I you know, ask a lot of audiences, which do you learn more from, your mistakes or your successes? 
And generally speaking, most everyone would agree we learn more from our mistakes. Now, I'm not suggesting let's not make mistakes just on purpose, but it's it's not a bad thing. Certainly some mistakes can have serious and deleterious consequences, but we need to get out of the blame and the negative emotion and look at life more practically. That's, as I understand it, the Torah approach. The guilt is simply there as a little signal that says, oh, time to make a rational analysis to find out what needs to be done. Years ago, I worked for uh, an advertising agency that had uh, was one of the, I guess, smallest you could think of. It was uh, the president and myself and two secretaries. But we had the largest radio and television account in western Washington state and part of Alaska and part of eastern Washington. And uh, the president decided to take a uh, trip down to Puerto Rico to make a film. So he was going to be gone for a week. And we did new commercials with this firm every single week. So there's production going on, whole production process in place continually. And before he left, he wrote us a bunch of instructions and notes. And one of the bullets I remember particularly, it was very interesting. It went like this. Don't worry about making decisions that have to be made. You'll find out soon enough if they're wrong. Then fix them. And that was it. And that's what life is about. Fixing mistakes isn't what kills us. It's the image of perfection we have that kills us. So what we've got to do is deal with the emotions as we go. And for example, if we find out that we're angry, we need to wait till that anger subsides and then analyze and say, okay, why did I get angry? Well, you know, so, so that guy pulled in front of me. What's the big deal? Why did I get so upset about that? And what can I do differently next time? And what can I see about myself so that I can change that? And then I go over those ideas and again and again go back to review. This is, by the way, what repentance is about. Repentance is a practical working out of seeing the consequences of our actions. It's undoing the emotions that caused us to make the mistake. Okay, the point is, I mean, we certainly have to undo consequences, you know, if we've done them, but the key underlying thing is to undo the emotions that caused the consequences in the first place. Uh, I would submit to you that we don't change our pattern of life because of guilt, shame, and fear. We change it because we have seen the underlying reasons behind something and we have introduced correct ideas to ourselves which gets us back to the only way we make real behavior change is when an idea is put into our mind. Okay, questions? All right, let me move on. Tool number nine, be realistic and enjoy learning. One of the most freeing things about living a realistic life, a life of Torah, is that it allows us to be human. Um, we we need to just be realistic about our various needs. Let me give you an example. Um, I, by professional training, I'm an actuary. To be an actuary, there are a series of professional examinations that you take, kind of like the CPA exams or the bar exams, uh, in order to uh, get trained in that profession. At the time I took the exams, there were nine of them. And it took the average person who got through them all seven to ten years to do it. Now, I set myself up right out of college with 
what I would consider to be practically an impossible study schedule, and I obsessed over it. I wouldn't let myself do anything uh, much uh, in the way of fun because I was always feeling guilty that I should be studying more because I should get more done. And, you know, this was my route to, to professional success, and I've got to do this, and so... You know, I would study on the bus, and I would study at lunch, and I would study at home, and I would study on the weekends, and I would just guilt myself with study something fierce. I did get through the exams fairly rapidly, but I didn't have much of a life along the way, and it took me almost six years to do it. Compare that with one of my colleagues who was married and had a son, and he sat down and figured out that he was probably going to have to take each exam twice in order to pass it. And so he set out a very realistic study schedule. He did not push himself to be superhuman. And he enjoyed his family, his son, uh, and his life along the way. Now, it took him longer to get through the exams than it took me. But there was a guy who had a life. And he was realistic. I was not. So I would suggest to you that we have to be very realistic about our own lives, where we are, and not try to skip steps and be somewhere that we're not. The Torah does not want us to try to jump to a level that we're not on. Um, I, I once uh, shared with um, uh, Rabbi Moskowitz a uh, very short story about Rabbi Akiva, a very famous rabbi in uh, Jewish history, who said, he who has bread in his basket today and asks, what shall we eat tomorrow, is of those of little faith. He who has bread in his basket today and asks, what shall we eat tomorrow, is of those of little faith. And I, I scratched my head and I thought, hmm, you know, I worry about tomorrow and my 401k plan and my investments and planning for retirement and this, and I got plenty to eat today. And I finally said to Reverend Moskowitz, I said, you know, what about that? And he said, look. He said, you're talking here about a guy who's on a very high level. He said, the rest of us are, you know, at, at uh, a lower level. And he said, you can't pretend to be on that level or, like, try to force yourself. You have to accept where you are and then move one step at a time from there. You can't skip steps in this process. It was very, very freeing because the Torah doesn't want us to, you know, as far as I can tell from everything I have learned, beat ourselves up. It wants us to be realistic about our own needs and about uh, other people's needs as well. Uh, so we shouldn't try to force ourselves to change overnight. We just take one situation at a time, one idea at a time, and it's a developmental process. And over time, the love of Torah and the love of learning will become so attractive or can become so attractive that you voluntarily decide, say, to go do learning instead of other things. For a long time, I used to you know, like guilt myself a little bit into learning. Like, well, I really should be going studying Torah, when in reality what I really want to do is go watch a movie. But if you let yourself be where you are and you enjoy the learning and push yourself just a little bit to get into it but are realistic about your other needs, over time you get to a place sometimes where you decide, you know, I'd really rather go learn than go watch a movie because it's that attractive to us. And that, again, gets to the final point of just developing a love for learning itself, just for the pure enjoyment of it, for no utilitarian benefit at all. You know, as kids, we were all so curious about everything in life, 
And if we can kindle and keep rekindling that childlike sense of curiosity, um, of, you know, interest in an idea and watching things and enjoying an idea and the view of life and letting it roll around in our mind, um, that it can be, uh, you know, more interesting than all the material things uh, that there are. We often get caught up a lot in our striving for the bigger paycheck, the newer car, the bigger house, uh, and so forth. But a, a person who's constantly focused on making more money may enjoy himself once in a while, but his essence is always in the future because it's always when I get that next thing, when I get that next uh, raise or house or car or whatever. A person who is constantly involved in learning enjoys the study. Yeah, and as a side point, we have to prepare practically in life, and we have to earn enough money to put bread on the table and so forth. But but our essence becomes the the, the studying, the learning, being in the present moment uh, right now. So those are our, our nine tools. Ask questions, be able to see and act on the basis of consequences, uh, make sure that the ideas are clear to our mind, which is how we'll make real behavior change, leading with our intellect, uh, understanding one idea clearly rather than many ideas superficially, being constantly involved in review of the important ideas that we've learned, learning how to differentiate between facts and interpretations, uh, making sure that we understand that guilt is just there to prompt us to do an investigation, and being very realistic with ourselves and enjoying the learning just as an activity in itself for the beauty of an idea. Any questions on anything that we have covered? Okay. Uh, I want to make sure everyone understands that uh, we'll, we have more material to cover and we'll be moving on to the seven no hard laws, but there will not be a class next week. So we will skip a week and uh, start up um, the following week after that. That would be the week, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, uh, we'll start up again. So no class next week, but uh, uh, we'll have one uh, the week after that. And if you have questions along the way, please uh, don't hesitate to drop me an email. Uh, be happy to do my best to answer those. Thank you all very much. And Jack, I will turn the microphone over to you. Okay, uh, hello everybody, good evening, and hope that everybody hears me. Not overdriving the system. Shalom everyone. So everybody can hear me. Well, this is okay, not driving anybody's ears out. 